0: Alright, get started here, I want to thank the head of our media department for <laughs> some last-minute brush changes to make this possible. Um, I had had everything prepared so it would show up real nice in that. <laughs> okay, that's <laughs> laid plans, right? That's <laughs> right. Alright. Well, we'll be continuing on in the study of the seven churches. Tonight we look at the uh, church of Pergamos. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you allow us the opportunity to do this. God, you've given us so much in your word, and so often, God, we kind of skim over the the geography and the, the history that's contained in your word along with the, the very words you speak to our souls to encourage us and direct us and guide us and teach us. And Father, we thank you that tonight we can take that time to look a, a little more at the geography and history. And Lord, as we study not just this church tonight, but all the churches, God, we look for your anointing, God, upon us to hear. We know it's already upon your word. Let me just ask you to anoint us to hear it. Anoint us, God, to understand, and Lord, give the encouragement, the uplift, the direction, and the, the word that needs to be heard tonight to each one of us. And Father, we give you the glory for it, because we've asked you to do this, so we know it's going to happen. We thank you. Amen. Amen. All right. We'll start out reading uh, Revelations chapter 2, verse, verse 12 is where we start up with the uh, church of Pergamos. And if things don't run real smoothly, uh, one of the changes was, I'm not using my computer, so. <laughs> <laughs> Set up just slightly different. Okay, Revelations starts with 2.12, says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamus, write, these things saith he which hath sharp sword with two edges, one of the things that didn't, okay. Like I said, it's a little different. I can't even find the cursor. <laughs> there we go, okay. All right. I know that works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and I hold us fast my name, and as not denied my faith, even in those days where Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against thee. Because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of Nicolaitans, which I hate, thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to either the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth. Okay. The... Uh, the church at Pervinus has got a, uh, I guess you might call it a nickname if you will. One of the things it's known for is Church Compromise. Not something we want to be known for, but that's what this church was best known for. Its location, this points, actually points out where all seven of the churches are at. But, uh, you see, we mentioned the Loveless Church at Ephesus, Persecuted Church at Smyrna, and tonight the Compromising Church. It's uh, located 40 miles south, southeast of Smyrna uh, in a valley where the, what was called the Imperial Highway was running through the coast of Asia. Apergamus was about 15 miles from the Aegean Sea and the banks of the uh, Little River uh, Caicos. The city was built and named by the the Greeks uh, soon after the fall of Troy, about the 12th century or so before Christ. The reason that's in, or interesting or worth mentioning is the fact that that makes it one of the oldest cities in Asia and of the world. And uh, I thought it interesting enough, the first three churches it mentioned, the first three churches we study, was uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamon you know, they were all rivals. They were rivals for first place among the cities of the province uh, known as Asia Minor. They you know, all thought they ought to be, ought to be number one. Uh, of course, we haven't got over that t- today. We saw the church is fighting to be number one. Yeah. 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 There we go. Okay. Uh, the, the city was guarded, use that in parentheses, okay? Guarded by uh, five deities. There's patron deities, ones that uh, they thought among all the gods that these were the, the main ones to uh, to worship. These were the, the most important ones. Uh, Zeus being the, uh, the, the first one, Athena, and uh, well, we'll get to the others here in a moment. Um, I did a little little research try to get an idea you know, if you're into Greek or, uh, mythology or whatever you know this is uh, you know, the statue of Zeus he was the uh, the god of sky and thunder and uh, in ancient Greek religion I mean he was the, the you know the top god the king of the gods of Mount Olympus uh, Rome had a comparable god they called Jupiter uh, the temple of Zeus was located there in, in Pergamos, and it was uh, one of the seven wonders of the world. It's a uh, well, actually, actually, the ruins of it can still be seen today. Uh, they've been excavated, and uh, said it was built on a, a stone foundation. Okay, yeah, you know, we build foundations for well, even this church has got a you know concrete foundation down under it someplace, and. Most of the time, I haven't been in a building for a long time, but most of the time, you know, the foundation's, you know, not a real wide things. Sometimes it's not much wider than a concrete block. And we dig them down and get down below the, the frost line. It drove me crazy when we first moved here. People dig, in. they dig their, their footers and lay down their foundation and just about to use a plow to do it. I came from Indiana, we had to go down more than three feet to, to do that kind of stuff, you know. But back in the ancient days, they, uh, evidently they didn't want to take any chances. The foundation was uh, 16 feet by 124 feet by 114 feet. It's a huge foundation. The temple wasn't gonna go any place, that's for sure. Its altar was made out of black marble and it had a lot of carvings on it and you know we're not talking on you know, a nice nice holder, nice you know stand nice table type thing we're talking something 40 feet high 40 feet high and all this carving stuff i mean you know they went, went all out for their gods and uh, the modern church and we're no, no, no offense to anybody, but the modern church, if we're asked to give a little extra to collection plates, you yeah. know. They went all out. I think mean, you may smiles when talking about collection plate too. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh the the next god or goddess that they had was one known as Athena. And Athena was referred to also as a, a palace. Athena was uh, an ancient Greek goddess, was associated with wisdom, handicraft, and warfare, believe it or not. Uh, later on, her entity was uh, sort of merged with the Roman goddess, Minerva. And Athena was regarded as the, the patron, the, the protectress of various cities around Greece, and particularly Believe it or not, the city of Athens, the name Athena. Athens. Following Athena, there's the uh, the god Dionysus. Uh, he was a god of the grape harvest. He's also one I had to do a little creative censorship on the statue. Uh, he was in charge of you know the, the grape harvest, winemaking, orchards, fruit vegetation, and it begins to make sense when you realize he's in charge of all this stuff that leads to uh, overindulgence and drunkenness and acting crazy, because he was also the god of fertility, insanity, ritual madness, religious ecstasy, and festivity. There's a theater in ancient Greek, uh, and Greek religion that was set aside just for him. And when they, they, uh, the next God that they had a, a worship for, or set aside for, was God As- Asclepius. I probably butchered his name, but he's not here to complain about it. No. <laughs> but, <yeah>. <coughs> Sorry, <coughs> like pastor told me years ago when I first started preaching. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of these Bible names, let's be honest, you look at them, it's kind of like, huh? <laughs> they told me, he so, said, you just go ahead and say it how it sounds good to you. You're the one standing up there preaching, everybody think that's the way it's supposed to be said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, this uh, Asclepius was uh, a hero and god of medicine in ancient Greek, and they're religion also, and in, in, in their mythology. He was also called the god of Pergamos. is uh, represented in the healing aspect of the medical arts. If you notice, this rod that he's holding, he's got a, a snake entwined about it. Uh, the rod of Asclepius is similar to uh, something else, it's called a caduceus. Caduceus is carried by Romes and, or Hermes in Roman mythology and it remains the symbol of the medical profession even today okay now get into the geography of the area a little bit the city was oops the the city was named uh, for the hill on which it sits actually the cliff or um, mountain whatever you want to refer to it as that it was built on was um almost like it straight up out of the ground It was a, you know a lofty city it was thought to be impregnable because you get uh the, the actual name anyway uh Pergmus means tower or height uh, also means elevation and carries with it the idea of exaltation so it was also called the exalted city. And uh, oddly enough, it also indicates a union th- through marriage. And I think with all the, the uh, fertility customs and debauchery and things that went on in their d- different religions, it, just, it seems odd to me that it would have that idea of the, the city itself carrying the idea of its name meaning adjoining together in, in marriage. Anyway, like I said, it, it took its name from this big rock though that stood up so straight. The walls were almost perpendicular, except for one, and the one that wasn't almost perpendicular uh, had a real narrow passageway in order to get up to the top of it. Uh, it was, you know, because it was a narrow passageway, and the fact that they were able to look down upon it, you know, it was easily easy to guard it. You didn't have to have a lot of guards in order to uh, take care of it because you couldn't hardly get off of the path in order to get up to the city. And if you stayed on the path, you were an open target. So because of the natural defense system, said so it's an impregnable stronghold, and they they lived there. People that lived there lived in safety, and they lived in that that confidence that we live someplace that nobody is going to be able to get to us that uh, we are completely, totally safe in in living here. Of course, we know that's been thought of many places and it did turn out that way too. Uh, It's called the most illustrious city of Asia. And uh, believe it or not, it was actually the educational center for Western Asia. Uh, Anybody remember back in school Maybe you took the literature class. I remember a fellow named Homer. You know, a couple heads shaking out there. Homer, you know, one of their earliest poets. If you didn't didn't already know, uh, he was one that. Uh, excuse me. <laughs> he was one of the earliest poets, and uh, another one called uh, Herodotus, called the father of history. They they studied there, and they wrote it there, and they spent a good deal of their time doing their uh, their research and their literary arts there. Uh, because of the fact that this city, you get an idea of how huge the place was, they had a large, large library. Now, I don't know about you, I'm not you know, I'm not a Greek scholar or even much of a historic history buff. But when I was was studying this, and I, I fell on the thing about being a library, so their library contained a little over 200,000 volumes. And I thought, wow. I mean, we're, we're talking the day and age where people wrote out physically on you know, paper, their paper of their time, for lack of a better term had to bind together these things to make volumes and books. And they stored over 200,000 of them in this one area. It was second only to the world famous library of Alexandria. And matter of fact, uh, the two libraries were uh, actually the source of a long rivalry, a bitter rivalry uh, between the two cities. Uh, Egypt, uh, they thought. Well, you know, we're going to we're going to do something about this. Pergamum library, there they're outshining us. They're overdoing things. We're going to interrupt their source. And Egypt pretty much curtailed the shipment of papyrus, which was you know that, that ancient paper that talked about. So that the people in Pergamon weren't able to get papyrus to write on. And they figured oh, that takes care of it. Now, you know, our library is going to be the library. We're going to be the biggest and the best. And they didn't count on the ingenuity of the people who lived there. The people of Pergamus, when they couldn't get papyrus, they began to dress the skins of animals and began to write on the animal skins, calling the new material Pergamus. Later, Pergamos was called Parchment. So that's where, or Parchment even today, you know, that's where the history of it comes from. Uh, the rivalry between those two cities went on for a long time. And finally, somebody else that you've probably heard of before, a fellow named Mark Anthony, he put an end to it because he gave the library of Pergamus to a lady named Cleopatra as a gift. So they basically then had one huge library and for about 250 years or so, Pergamus was uh, officially the capital of the whole province there. Okay, now we get, get into the, the scripture a little bit more here. The, uh, the first verse that we read it says, "The angel of the church of Pergamus write these things, saith he, which hath the sharp sword with two edges." Pergamus was a place also where the uh, decrees of Caesar came from Excuse me. Uh, anyway whenever Caesar had a decree it was executed from Pergamus. and say okay well what's that got to do with you know with the Bible the point behind it is that uh, It gives force and meaning to something that that Christ said. Christ said, the the angel of the church of Pergamos write, these things saith he, which hath a sharp sword with two edges, the uh, symbol in Rome of their power, their might, was a broad sword, it was a two-edged sword or double-bladed if you want to call it that. It was known as the cut and thrust sword. And it was the, the emblem of the highest authority. Carrying it means you had the power of life and death. If I carried it, it and I'd probably end up poking myself a few times during the day. But that's, that sword had a, a significance to it and Whoever, whoever had this, this power, they were empowered with this power of life and death by the proconsuls of the province. And all of those lived at Pergamos. So the governor basically wielded the sword of Rome. I get this, the governor is sitting in the impregnable fortress where nobody can get to him and figure you in totally completely safe and i've got the sword with all the power what i say goes it goes from here and if you don't like it will you just dare come and do something about it that's pretty much the attitude you know they felt they were unable to be conquered uh the the governor not only wielded this authority but uh you know he gave that whole idea to the people that you know, we are impregnable too Pergamus was uh, the seat of the Roman Supreme Court. There's a lot going on in this city, of course. You know, when I, I looked at the, you know, the slide with the size of it, uh, it just kind of blew me away. I'm I'm amazed when I see these guys out here with steam shovels and backhoes and skip loaders and whatever, out you know doing great work and putting in roads and doing construction and getting Foundations laid out and all that, and they got big, huge machines of using. We're talking, you know, back in the days of back-breaking labor, you know, shovel, pick, hammers, and just think that they had built this entire city up on this huge, huge mountain. I don't know how they got up there to start with to build it, you know. And then they—they had a right, I guess, to feel like they were untouchables, uh, the, city, the prisoners that were uh, sentenced by Rome were brought to this city for trial. And all the different parts of the province, they brought him to Pergamus in order to stand trial. Uh, they were sentenced by the power of life and death. It all came down from you know, the, the, uh, the proconsul. So, this, when Christ talks about the sword that proceeds out of his mouth, we're talking about, uh, uh he mentioned also, we'll get in, in Revelation 2.16 a little bit, he's talking about a symbol of his uh, judicial authority. You know, we, we don't like to think about that side so much. We think about, you know, how God is gracious and, and he is and, and merciful, but he also has a. Uh, Judicial side, and if he didn't, well, if he didn't, I dare say any, a lot of us would be in a lot of trouble because without any threat of you know, evil, harm, hurt, that would be faultless if we didn't take the right path. The Bible says, you know, there's pleasure in sin for a season. And I mean, I can't speak for everybody else, but I know for me, if there wasn't any any punishment to it, yeah, there's probably a lot of sin I'd get involved in and, and stay involved in. On in verse 13, it says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. And I us fast my name and has not denied my faith. Even in those days where Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. When he talks about the place where Satan dwelleth, he is literally speaking of the city, purpose. The word seat, as it's used here, comes from a Greek word that we also translate throne. This was the not only the high place for the people this was the high place for Satan, too. This was a place that he sat in power. And uh, it was the, the headquarters for the, the pagan religions of the, that province. Not just one, but pagan religion as a whole was headquartered at Pergamos. The uh, uh, ancient nations, nations, they had an idea pretty much foreign to us today. See, in this country, you know, we we hear people spout off all the time about separation of church and state. Well, in the ancient cities and the ancient religions, they followed pretty much the idea of what uh, uh, Judaism follows today, what Israel follows today. The church and state are one. There's no discrepancy. Israeli policy, you know, they go to base on what, what is said in the Torah? What does, what does the, you know, the Old Testament scriptures? What do they say? This is what they're supposedly basing their government and their lives on. And that was the thing with Pergamus and all the, uh, all the other places that were set up in any kind of pagan religion. Whatever their religion said, the government backed up. You know, the religion said it's it's all right to take a. Uh, a newborn child and sacrifice it in the fire. Don't don't complain to the government about it, because the government's behind that. So that's the way to go, yeah. We've got to we've got to keep our gods happy. So the you know the people were under that uh, that whole idea and that whole uh, grooming from the, the minute they were born until the moment they died that all of what the government said was okay. All of what the government wanted to do was okay because they were in line with the powers that be and with the, the, the mighty, mighty powers. And these mighty, mighty powers were represented in our religions and our gods. And, you know, how, how dare you go against that? Who would want to stand up against that? The ruler of the state was the head of the religion of the state. Remember the Bible talks about Satan, calls him the ruler of this world. The God of this world. And what he does, He actually he attempts to pattern earthly kingdoms after his own. I mean, he, he has ruled the world through human governments. Stop and think about it. He's controlled human governments by means of false counterfeit systems of religion. You look back, whether it be you know, whether it be the era of Hitler, or whether you want to look at, uh, at Tojo, or you want to look at the, uh, you know, the, the basic Japanese teachings, and we were at war with them even. All the, the different powers of the world that are not Christians have this different religious setup. And this is where the, the devil tries to slowly sneak in. He doesn't care if it doesn't happen immediately. And look how long it's gone on in our country since kids got in trouble for praying in school. Look how long it took to get Roe versus Wade taken care of and the fight that's still coming because, uh, well, they want to fight now because, okay, this is all up to individual states now instead of up to the entire government, which I agree with that idea, Now the individual states are fighting, still fighting. People that call themselves Christians, yeah. mm-hmm. people that say they love God, people that say they're born again, people you'll see sitting in church on Sunday mornings, are fighting to kill babies. Mm-hmm. Because why? That a false religion. The enemy can sneak it in there. They sneak it in a little bit. That's all he cares about. Because just like you know, the, the example given in scripture about uh, about leaven, a little bit of it's all it takes. Leaven a whole loaf, make a whole loaf of fries. Uh there are beautiful, elaborate temples to the Greek and Roman gods that were all contained in a grove they called the, the glory of the city. And the city was known also as the temple keeper or the temple warden for the gods of all the different types of paganism. And right in the center of this was emperor worship. Uh, Matter of fact, in 29 AD, there was a great temple that was erected to the worship of Augustus Caesar. Augustus Caesar was to be referred to as Lord Caesar. Uh, Matter of fact, uh, excuse me, Emperor Domitian, decreed that all peoples everywhere should address him as our Lord and our God. That was the title given for Augustus Caesar. Uh, The Temple of Zeus was the most celebrated of all the temples. And uh, it was also dedicated, oddly enough, the Temple of Zeus was dedicated to the one I had the most trouble pronouncing now, Asclepius. It's Asclepius also referred to as a serpent god or the god of healing. Uh, it was known as the temple of Asclepius, and, called, and he was called the great physician. Another familiar term. Also called the savior. And he was given other titles showing that he was, in fact, a counterfeit of Christ. In this temple, was a living serpent. And that living serpent was kept and cared for and even worshipped. And serpent worship became universal in Pergamus uh, to the point that you know, as they dug up a lot of their coins and, and art of the realm. They all all had uh, serpents represented on them, many of them wrapped around a pole, like the uh, like the rod or the caduceus. Uh, so the Temple of Zeus was a place where there was a lot of healings that took place. Peoples today a lot of times will, will labor under the misconception. Well, <coughs> excuse me, so-and-so prayed for this person and they prayed for him, and they got healed, so we know that it was God working through them. Sounds good, and it makes good sense. You know, and you can find a lot of biblical background for that to back up that thought. But at the same time, if the devil is the one that brought a a sickness or a lameness upon somebody, and one of his servants says, be gone, lameness, well, the same devil that put it on them has no trouble taking it off of them if it furthers his need and his teaching. That's why we've got to be careful with People that come along and you know claim to be uh, claim to be prophets, led of God. If they are, their life will prove it out. Their ministry will prove it out. Not just one thing. Not just because they uh, preach a good sermon or they they uh, healed a few people or performed even a couple miracles. Remember, even the uh, uh, the servants of Pharaoh, his magicians, even they perform miracles. We have to be cautious that we take what's being said and being shown and compare it to the Word of God and make sure it matches up to God's Word. If somebody is a a real sincere prophet of God, they don't have to tell you. They don't have to take out a, a billboard down here on the highway to tell you that they're a prophet. People know it. Their reputation will show it. Uh, Satan is also, you know, also, we're talking about serpent. Satan is also referred to in scripture as that old serpent. And part of the reason, uh, you know, his agent, a serpent, brought about the serpent, wrote about fall of man. Got had a big part in it. I won't say it's brought it about because uh, Adam and Eve had a part to do with that too. But it seems odd that the symbol of poison, the symbol of death, is a thing that has come to represent the healing arts you now. Yeah. A serpent. Uh, as previously mentioned, you know, that temple of Zeus was one of the seven wonders of the world. Uh, Bacchus, the god of wine, and Venus, goddess of lust, were also worshipped in Pergamus. There was a lot of ungodly rituals and uh, licentiousness and uh, just... just immoral things that took place there. And this all reigns supreme. Throne of Satan. Why shouldn't it? It's a good place for it. And there's a connection also uh, to Babylon. When uh, when Cyrus captured the city of Babylon, the, uh, you know, the ancient seat of Satan's counterfeit system, the religion, the supreme pontiff, the uh, priests, the ministries of that that area—they fled the city, and ultimately they made their residence. Guess where? Erebus, where they ended up at. Here they reestablished the uh, Babylonian religions and Babylonian worship styles, and they made the kings of Pergamon, the chief pontiffs of their religion. The reason that that's important is that when uh, Attalus III was the last of their priests or priests slash kings, when he died, we're talking 133 BC, we're not talking super, super, super old. What he, he did when he died, he was bequeathed his royalty and his priestly office to the Romans. a century later, Caesar becomes both emperor of Rome and Pontifex Maximus, or the, the chief pontiff of the religion of the empire. So he's given divine honors, and uh, these divine honors then were handed down to his successors. That's one reason that you know Caesar was looked upon as God. Now these were later assumed, believe it or not, I, I say this from the, coming from a Catholic background myself, these were later assumed by the popes. And the popes became the supreme pontiffs of ecclesiastical Rome, of the Roman religion, or, um, or <laughs> excuse me, Catholic Church. So there, this gives a, uh, a joining or a connection between Ancient Babylon and modern Babylon. The Christians of Pergamos, get around to them, you know, after saying all this, it kinda of sounds like, Well, was there anybody and you sure there was Christians there? I mean, all you talk about is bad evil stuff there. Let's just kind of set the stage of what they were living in. Because the Christians of Pergamos, they they're in a very seat of satan the very throne of satan the headquarters of satan this is where they're having their church at this is where they're worshiping the living god and the fact that they were in close proximity to all that uh you know the modern mind would think well i can understand them going a little bit astray can't you i mean they're, they're seeing this stuff all around them day in day out no no stop to it thing is God didn't see it that way. He still doesn't see it that way. He said uh, living in that close proximity to Satan was no excuse, no excuse for failure, no excuse to to be defeated either. Uh, matter of fact, we, we find that the Scripture tells us in Romans 5:20, "So moreover, the law injured that the offense might abound." But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Hmm. In short, he's expecting grace to really take off. You're right in the throne of Satan. You're right in the headquarters of Satan. This is a place where grace ought to really be manifest. This is a place where it ought to really abound. This is a place where we all ought to really get with it. I dare say some of them were much like a church in America today, and sit back and say, amen, yeah, preach your brother, yeah, that's the way it ought to be, and then go home and do absolutely nothing about it. Uh, fortunately, I, I like to think we've learned a little bit since then, but that's, you know, the, the thing says, history repeats itself. It's going to continue to repeat itself too unless we do something about it. Unless we do something different. Unless we take a different step. Unless we break that old maxima about insanity. You know, the, the definition of it, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results that don't work that way. But even with all this problem, there was a commendation to the church. Read again there in Romans or in Revelation are 2.13. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days were in Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. The Lord hadn't give up on him. And, you know, he doesn't give up on us, thankfully. Uh, Lord knows I've given him plenty of opportunities to give up on me. He's faithful. And in this letter to the church, it says, amidst all these things, even the way the city is, the way that things are taking place, and even though some of you have, have done things that I really don't care for, some I don't like, some that I absolutely hate, There's those of you that have been faithful, even in the face of martyrdom. I had just personally, I'd always thought, anyway, that if I happen to live long enough that we're in a position where we're being tortured in order to call us to cause us to denounce Christ. I always like to think that with God's power, God's blessing, not me, not my strength, but in his strength, I always like to think, i would be strong enough. Be strong enough to hang on. Hang on either till God delivers me or, or just takes me out or does something where I don't feel the pain or whatever. Uh, and I won't, I, I don't say that I know I will or no, I won't, but I got a rude awakening just, as a matter of fact, just over the weekend, uh, I've had some uh, some muscle spasms, uh, some something like I've never experienced before. Was when this muscle spasm took place, I was you know part way getting up, part way between getting out of the chair and standing up, and when it hit. All I could do was scream. I mean, I could not move. It's just like I was frozen. It hurt so bad. And I don't say that to gain sympathy, but I'd say it because it made me think afterwards. Oh man, would I really? If I had endured that going on over and over and over and over and over, Based in me, I mean, with, without God's help at it, I think about the second time be enough. And God, God would have to be, and I said, "Well, that sounds pretty weak, brother. So I'm just trying to be honest with you, be real with you. It hurt that bad. So I know that for the Christians of the past, the present, or the future, to be sustained during torture and and." You know, called upon to, to turn away from Christ with all different types of, of uh, methods of torture. It's really going to take God to get us through it, and we better be prepared for it now. Because if we prepare for it now, then when we happen, I, when it happens, I think it'll just be a kind of a normal course of events. Just like we read that it was for many of the the martyrs. We hear stories of people from other countries that how God has intervened in their lives. Anyway, uh, Pergamos was a place where Jesus commended these disciples. Uh, One of them uh, was martyred in the city, or near the city at least, uh, set forth as a symbol or representative for all the faithful that Period. The, the only mention we have in Scripture of Antipas is in the New Testament. And uh, according to tradition, I say it's just tradition because we, uh, we don't have the absolute irrefutable facts to back it up, but the Jewish tradition says that uh, he was a bishop of Perth. It's given to the church. There's also a bit of a reproof. We read on in verse 14 says, But I have a few things against thee. Because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, or Balaam, however you pronounce it, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. The word few in there means puny or small in number. And uh, saying there were some some people, he had a few things. I don't know if those were the only things, but those were the only things that he mentioned anyway. He says, I've got a, a small number of things against you. And what I mentioned to you is some of you cling, cling on to the doctrines of Balaam. Uh, if you take a look in your Bible I don't suggest now for the sake of time but like when you get home uh, Numbers chapters 22 through 31 uh, that contains the account of Balaam and what went on with him uh, long story short Balak was the king of Moab and Balaam was a non-Israelite prophet non-Israelite prophet of God if you can get that and Balak basically hired Balaam to curse the children of Israel so that he could fight them and win the battle. Problem was, Balaam told him, say, hey, you know, I can only say what God gives me to say. I've got to say that. So he refused to go. He was told not to go. The told him not to. But Balak was persistent. Long story short, he he ends up going and... uh, on the way there, he even got a warning. Everybody has heard of the uh, talking talking donkey that was Balaam's that told told him, "Hey, don't go this way." When he gets there, he tells the kings the same thing. I can't, I can't say but what God gives me. So he ends up blessing the, the Israelites. But he tells the kings, of not wait, a minute. I, and I tell you what you can do, though. What you can do." is introduce them to the Moabite women. Introduce them. And what will happen is the Moabite women will seduce them. They'll have sex with them. They'll start worshiping their gods. They'll become weak. And you can just walk all over them now. And that was the, the way of, of Balaam. Uh, he taught him, like I said, to put a stumbling block there. In doing that, Balaam suggested that uh, you know they, they eat food, sacrifice to idol, idols, and this act of rebellion ended up costing the Israelites 24,000 people. There's a, a plague that hit and killed 24,000 of them, that's in numbers, 25-9. 20, nation of Israel waged war against the Moabites and they claimed victory as part of that victory they also killed Balaam killed him with the sword and Balaam and the Moabites at that point then ceased to be a threat to the success of the promised land in short the doctrine of Balaam was to use his own teaching authority to persuade God's people it was all right for them to compromise the standards, even to commit fornication with idol-worshiping enemies. Then he mentions the Nicolaitans. There's been a lot of discussion and ideas and thoughts one way or the other about what, what they were, who they were, what they stood for. Um, and I can't tell you definitively which, if any of them are correct. I can tell you this much the, the name Nicolaitans comes from the Greek word Nikolaos and is a compound of the words Nikos and Laos. The word Nikos in the Greek meant to conquer and to subdue. The word laos basically meant to people. That's where we get our word laity. Um, these two words, compounded in one, Formed the name then of Nicholas, and it seems to suggest that the Nicolaitans were somehow conquering and subduing the people, that's by their their teaching. Uh, in Acts 6:5, I'm not going to read for time's sake, but Acts 6:5 tells us that Nicholas was a proselyte of Antioch. Now the fact he was a proselyte tells us he wasn't born a Jew, so. He made a change and converted from paganism to Judaism, but then he experienced a second conversion from Judaism to Christianity. And according to the writings of the early church leaders, he taught a doctrine of compromise. He implied that total separation between Christianity and the practice of the occult paganism was not essential. It's all right to mix the two of them. And you could you can figure out for yourself pretty much where where the right place was and you know how much of what to do. I see it all the time. I get behind cars, got a bumper sticker that says coexist. Got all these different religious symbols. <laughs> we have churches today that very careful very very careful not to mention too much about biblical doctrine because they might offend people we have churches that call themselves christians say they promote the will of god they promote the gospel that stand for compromise it's all right to let a little bit of it in it's all right to have well it's not only all right to have gay people come in we want them to come in we want to share the gospel with them we want to share with them that god loves them and that we love them and that you know, God is willing to, to forgive all of their past. But you can go further than that. It's all right to have them on your church board. It's all right to accept them in membership. It's all right to put them in leadership. It's all right to have them teach your classes. You compromise a little bit so they feel comfortable. It's all right to do that with any, any group that stands for something contrary to the Word of God. And In short, that's my definition of doctrine of the Nicolaitans. When uh, we look at the scripture and all that God did to try to protect his people and all the times that they fought against it and did the opposite, it amazes me that we are still in existence today. That we, as a church, have made it this far. Excuse me. He goes on and sums this up or closes this up talking about the reward. The reward that's promised in Revelation 2.17. It says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. The hand that overcometh, to him that overcometh, will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will I give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth. Saving he that receiveth them. First time my wife read that, man, she she about she about went crazy. Had one of them Pentecostal hissy fits. <laughs> I mean, I I come home, I don't know, I come home from work or wherever it was, and come home she, I'm gonna get a new name. I'm gonna get a white it's gonna have a new name on it, nobody else is gonna know what it is. I've read that before, I'm like, yeah, okay. She still reminds me of that. She, oh, you were so excited and supportive, you know. <laughs> but she but you gotta realize she hated her her name. She's never liked Deborah and her middle name, which since this is being recorded, I won't even mention because I'd like to continue living where I'm living. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't like her middle name either. So she was thrilled to death and to know she's gonna get a brand new name. The Jar of manna, that, you know, we read in the scripture that there was a manna that put in a jar and put it in the ark and kept back. It was uh, kept back as a covenant and a pledge that those who obeyed the law would be fed. They'd never go hungry. And most of the references to the hidden manna refer to this. And, you know, God's quite capable of locating what happened to that jar and opening it up and taking and distributing manna out of it to the entire world. I mean, you know, I read... You read how he's fed five thousand, read another account how he's fed four thousand. You know, so he certainly has the capability of feeding everybody with that lost article, but uh it's more widely believed that what they're talking about here is really representing Christ. The living bread, the true, real, living manna, bread of life. Or some you know, some of the other translations you, if you're in Japan, he's called the Rice of Life. That's their their statement. He uh, tells us, uh, Jesus tells us that it is in the sixth chapter uh, of John that he declares himself to be that, that bread of life. And it's, it's a title well earned. He said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. And white stones. They represent a victory of a different type. White stones were given to the, uh, the gladiators when they won a victory. And Whitestone would have that gladiator's name carved in it. And that Whitestone bought them certain privileges, uh, one of which included maintenance at public expense for the remainder of their life. Whatever they needed, whatever they wanted, government took care of it for them for the rest of their life. The stone was called the pebble of victory. It, would, it was their invitation and their admission to parties. They could go to places that other people couldn't go just especially on that white stone. It was a ticket, it was a badge of friendship. It was also called the uh, tessera, uh, couldn't pronounce that first. When we look today, you know, white being a color of innocence, purity, joy, and victory. It's given to the overcomer as a symbol of victory but also indicates a pledge we're given a white stone with a brand new name and a pledge we're not going we've got that star man we're never going to go hungry we have access to anywhere we want to go because we have that friendship with jesus We have that pledge of eternal friendship with him. What we see in the Church of Pergamos, as I said, is a Church of Compromise. And in closing, the thing that I can say for the Church today is that we need to be cautious. I mentioned that a little bit ago. But it's not just the Church. The thing we really need to be cautious of, as we look at this church and we look at the the ones yet to come, when we see the things that were held against them and the things that they were commented for, complimented for. We need to look real close, real hard, real prayerfully, and with an open mind at this. we see any of those things in here we deal with them and as we deal with those things in here well surely if we're part of a church then i existed in the church but if we deal with them in here then those things will begin to drop off from the church those things will begin to disappear from the church and will begin begin to become more and more known as the church of god Amen. I've actually run us over a time, but if there's any, anybody had a comment they want to make, we'll I'll give a quick minute for that.
1: I just, can I throw in, Jamie's teaching a class Sunday night, and we had talked about how archaeologists back in the late 1800s had, had excavated Pergamos. Did you, did you mention that already? Nope. And they found what they say is the throne of Satan. It was actually an altar to Zeus. Well, they were able to take this artifact and they were able to take it to, actually they made a little museum for it, but back in like 1909 or something. But anyway, they had to move it to Berlin, Germany in 1930. And we know that what happened in the 30s is Hitler came to power. So uh, it's interesting to me that when you move the throne of Satan from Turkey to Berlin, that you know that may have had something to do with that's where Satan
0: shows up. that's where Satan shows up exactly undoubtedly <laughs> <laughs> okay anyone else all right once I have a, have a word of prayer then and uh, get out of here and take something with you even if even if you got it study take something with you to share with somebody tomorrow. Maybe you can share with somebody tonight to let them know God loves them. Father, we thank you, Lord, for all that you've done, all that you've supplied, God. We thank you for the lessons to be learned, God, from the history. We thank you, God, that we have a history also with you. Thank you, God, that we can count on you. We can count on your promises. We can count on your glory. And we can look to you, God, and know that these promises are true. Know that each one of us, God, has the power over the enemy, that each one of us has the power to live for you, that each one of us can be used of you, that each one of us can overcome the enemy as he comes to attack, and he comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, that we, we just simply need to stand upon the Word of God. We simply need to stand upon your Word and let that... That word of yours that comes out like a short two-edged sword, like the broadsword administer death to those things that come against us. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your life. We thank you for your encouragement. And God, I ask your blessing upon each one gathered here. Each one that's able to join us on, on stream or to, uh, play back later on. We thank you, Lord. And together, together with you, we shall see glory maybe sooner than we think God bless these people keep them all safe keep them all encouraged and give us opportunities to see
1: what you have for us to share with others in the name of Jesus Amen